God. We believe that it's living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, that it divides joints and marrow, and also soul and spirit. And this is why we read the scriptures every time we gather together as a church. This morning's scripture reading is from Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 to 31. If you're using the Blue Pew Bibles, it'll be on the very first page in your Bible, page 1. Again, the passage is Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 to 31. Please stand to honor the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Let me pray for us once more. Our gracious Father, we now pray that you send your spirit to give illumination, that we might understand the truth of your word, that you might speak personally to each one of us here, that we might come away having heard from you. We'll do this for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning I have the privilege of kicking off a mini-series that we're going to be doing called The Goodness of Givenness. Now, if you've been here long enough with us, you know that our normal practice is to just preach through books of the Bible. That's what we want to offer, to just give you a steady diet of expository sermons. Those are sermons where the point of the sermon is drawn directly from the point of the passage. But every so often, we do go through a short thematic series that allows us to be uh, an opportunity to speak into a particular issue uh, from a biblical worldview. So we still want to hear from Scripture as we do the series, but the format is going to be a bit different. We won't be walking through a singular text. Instead, we're going to be just mining the riches of Scripture and bringing it to bear on a particular topic. So what is this series on the goodness of givenness all about. Well, essentially, it is aimed at challenging the widespread assumption that we are masters of our own fate, that we have the ability, or more like the responsibility, to, de- 
to define our own reality, to forge our own identity in this world. That, my friends, is an idea largely assumed by most people today. It's where we see ourselves as master artists, born with a blank canvas. And as we get older, we're told that it is our responsibility to create a unique identity for ourselves, that, we were, that we're told that that really is a huge part of what life is all about. It's a journey of self-discovery and self-definition. The dominant cultural narrative of our day teaches that true happiness comes from discovering your true self, from looking within and finding the real you. And that's only half the battle. The world says that you will be perpetually unhappy if you repress the real you. And so you're going to need the courage to give expression to that new identity of yours. Now, just as those master artists who innovated new art movements, how they pushed boundaries and they broke artistic norms, well, in the same way, we are encouraged to push cultural boundaries and to break societal norms in this journey of ours for authenticity. There may be a cost to pay, but you're going to be celebrated in the end for being brave enough to express the real you. I wonder, does all that sound familiar to you? You hear it in so many of, of the songs and shows and stories that influence our culture. But friends, what you probably don't hear is how exhausting all of that really is. The reality is that the work of creation is exhausting. The responsibility to create something from scratch, to make something original is emotionally draining. I, I mean, I just think about having to write a sermon from scratch. I, I think about Thursday mornings where I'm usually in my office, staring at a blank screen for quite a while, longer than you might expect. It is a stressful process. It's exhausting. And I'm sure many of you can relate to that. Whether you tried your, to, to write a term paper from scratch, or you've tried to pen a song from scratch, or to draw a sketch from scratch, you know just how hard and how emotionally draining that task can be to create something from scratch. I'd argue that much of the hyper-anxiety that marks our late modern age can be attributed to our failed efforts to live up to this onerous task of being a creator. We are being crushed by the weight of expectation to make an identity for ourselves all from scratch. I really feel for young people today. I think much of the anxiety and insecurity that they face today can be explained by this cultural messaging that they are just inundated with every day. I mean, just think of the immense pressure that these young people are under to have to create their own identity. Oh, they better not mess up. They better choose wisely out of an, an, an infinite array of, of possible, possible identities. I mean, I, I just remember when I was their age, I, I thought having to pick which college to attend or which major to choose was, was already just high-pressured and stress-inducing. But those choices, of course, just paled in comparison to the kinds of decisions that young persons 
are faced with today. But church, this is exactly where we can offer good news. Because in contrast to the dominant cultural narrative of our day, the biblical narrative relieves you of the stress of having to define your own identity instead of laying on the pressure to be this master artist who creates something new. The Bible calls us instead to enjoy the work of an art restorationist. Do you know what an art restorationist is? Do, do, you, do you know the work of a restorationist? That's where you're not the original artist. You're not working with a blank canvas. Your job is not to create something from scratch. No, it is to restore that which has been deteriorated or which has been defaced. The point is, you are not a blank canvas. You are a work of art made by another. Now, sadly, sin has defaced your original design, so there is need of restoration in your life. But in this process of restoration, you don't have free reign to just come up with something new. You are bound by the original artist's intent and design. Now, I know that might sound too restrictive, too stifling for you, but actually, if you think about it, it's liberating. It's freeing to know that your only task is to restore because you know now that there is a given standard to guide you. That is a relief. That's encouraging. And friends, that is the heart behind this series. It's to encourage you. The goal is not to condemn you. The goal is not to ridicule anyone. Now, I know we're going to address some current issues and we're going to challenge some contemporary thinking, but we do so because we really believe that it will lift a heavy burden off of you. There is freedom to be found when we finally confess that we are not the master artist, that there is one master. There is one original artist, and our job is to know him and to know how he designed us to live as beings made in his image. Our task is to acknowledge and to appreciate our givenness, the goodness of our givenness. Now, in this series, we're going to uh, start by applying this principle of the goodness of givenness to the issue of gender identity. We're gonna to talk today about transgenderism. Now you might be wondering, why? Why are we going there? Isn't that topic just a bit too sensitive? Isn't it too controversial? Why are you gonna preach that from the pulpit? Now, that's a fair question. And to be honest, I, I wish I didn't have to talk about it. I, I, I'd rather not have to address touchy subjects. But I don't think I'd be a very helpful pastor if I just pretended that this wasn't a subject that you're having to process through right now as a Christian. Because the fact is that we can't go a week without reading about or hearing about gender identity in the news. From school board meetings to Supreme Court nomination hearings, everyone is talking about the T in LGBTQ. Everyone is asking hard questions. Now granted, they may not have been considered hard questions 10 or 20 years ago, 
but they sure are now. What is a woman is a question so hard that the newest nominee to the nation's highest court didn't know how to answer. And so that's all the more reason why we need to talk about this. We need to engage this issue and ask these hard questions. Friends, in all likelihood, you will at some point personally come to know someone struggling with gender identity. And perhaps you already do. Perhaps that person is you. And that's why we need to talk about this. Because the church, oh friends, the church ought to be the safest place for persons struggling with gender identity to share about it. The church should be the one place where you know that you can find a sympathetic ear if you were to share about your struggles between what your internal desires tell you and what external authorities tell you is true. Now, for some, that struggle is manifested in gender confusion, while for others, it might be manifested in a struggle with greed or gluttony. The outward manifestation might be different, but that inward struggle is still the same. Every Christian knows how hard it is to conform how we feel in our hearts with what the Lord says in his word. If you're a Christian, you know what that's like. You know how hard that is. And so Christians, of all people, should be sympathetic and sensitive towards those who are struggling with their gender identity. And even if most of us don't experience any confusion over our gender, I'm fairly certain that all of us experience some degree of discontentment with our bodies. That might not have anything to do with your anatomy, but maybe you're dissatisfied with the way that your body appears or the way that it's getting tired all the time or the way that it's breaking down and failing to respond like it used to when you were younger. We all feel that way to some degree or another. And so this probably explains why in our day and age so many people are drawn towards virtual reality, drawn into the metaverse. You know, new technologies are offering the promise of freeing our minds, freeing our imaginations from bodily restraints and bodily limitations. You just put on these pair of VR glasses and you enter into a new reality where you can choose your own avatar and you can exchange out your body for something entirely different or you can just escape the body altogether. But Christianity offers you something far better than virtual reality. The Christian gospel says that joy and happiness that, that you are seeking after is not found through an exchange or an escape from the body, but through redemption and transformation of our mortal bodies. The gospel calls us to repent of sin, not to reject our bodies. The gospel calls us to deny ourselves, but when Jesus said that, he meant denying our sinful desires, denying our selfish ambitions, not denying the way that our bodies were made. Friends, we have good news, not of escape, but good news of transformation. And so Christians, of all people, need to have no fear 
no trepidation in wading into a topic like this because we have good news to bring into the conversation. We can offer the hope of true happiness that's found in discovering how your creator made you and coming to appreciate the goodness of your givenness. Now, friends, before we turn to Scripture, let's first try to get a good grasp of what the dominant cultural narrative has been saying. What does the culture have to say about gender? Now, there are four particular things it has to say, and if, if, uh, if you want to follow along, you can see an outline in your bulletin, and four, those four statements are there for you. First, the culture says that your body is not you. You have a body, but you are not your body. So your body might communicate one gender, but that's not really who you are. Your, your body may not necessarily align with your identity. Now, I, I know that kind of talk sounds so very contemporary, but actually those are very ancient concepts. The roots of that kind of thinking actually goes back to ancient Greek teaching from philosophers like Plato. Platonic thought is what we call dualistic in nature. It, that means it presents a sharp dichotomy between the body and the soul or, or the mind. And so Plato taught that the body is merely a receptacle that your soul is poured into. The, the, the real you is your soul, not your body. Now, there was actually an ancient heresy in the early church that tried to wed this kind of platonic thought with Christianity. It was called Gnosticism. Gnostic thought was pessimistic towards the human body. It pictured the body as a prison house for the soul. You are trapped in your body. And it framed salvation in terms of liberation from our body and all of its physical limitations. That's very similar, if you think about it, to the anti-materialism that's found in many Eastern religions that also teach something very similar with a very dualistic view of the body and the soul. Well, so this is why, because of Gnosticism and its ascendancy in the early church, that's why New Testament authors were so adamant to defend the incarnation, to defend the idea that Jesus actually took on a body, that he came in the flesh. Listen to 1 John chapter 4, verses 2 to 3. John here has just warned in the previous verse about false prophets and the need for his readers to be discerning. And so in 1 John 4, verse 2, he says, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist. So friends, Gnostic thought has been creeping into the church since the days of the apostles. And sadly, it has taken root, not just in our secular society, but in the thinking of many in the church today. Gnostic heresy is on the ascendancy wherever it is assumed that the real me is my soul or my mind and not my body. That's a form of Gnosticism. Second, the culture says your gender is determined psychologically. Your gender is determined psychologically. 
When a baby is born, we're told that you can say it's a boy or it's a girl. But that's just the sex assigned at birth. That's not the baby's gender. We're told that you don't know the baby's gender yet because that's still to be determined. Now, that is founded on the idea that we are born as these blank canvases. When it comes to your identity, you are a blank slate. Now, the philosophical groundwork for that kind of thinking was actually laid out by another group of philosophers, not back in ancient Greece, but during the Enlightenment in Europe. Enlightenment philosophers, especially guys like Jean-Jacques Rousseau, he taught that human nature is intrinsically good. You're this blank slate, or even, even more positive than that, but you are corrupted by society. And so to discover your true identity, you need to dig past all of society's influences, all of society's norms and expectations, and look deep inside to find the real you. And when it comes to gender, you get to determine your gender for yourself. If you think about it, if, if you think that you're not your body, if you are fundamentally just your soul or just your mind, then you can ignore what gender your body seems to suggest. The authority of the body is silenced. Its voice is rejected. You only have to pay attention to what gender you feel you are or think you are. Gender has now become a psychological determination. Third, the culture says that your gender identity is fluid. Think about that. If gender is not based on physiology, but psychology, not on how you are physically constructed, but on how you think or feel about yourself, then gender can't be a fixed category since how we think and how we feel is never fixed. It changes all the time. So too can be our gender. It's not a fixed category. Now that kind of thinking typically results in a rejection of the gender binary, that idea that everyone is born either male or female. The culture would say that perhaps someone identified as male when he was young, but eventually he transitioned into a she, and now she identifies as female. Or, or maybe the individual rejects the binary altogether and just prefers to be identified as genderqueer. Now, all of that that I just said there, you have to understand, would have made no sense to your grandparents or to their generation. And perhaps it would have made no sense to you just 10 years ago or 20 years ago. But now, I think you understand what I'm saying. We, we, we've been hearing it enough to, to, to grasp that idea of transitioning from one gender to the other. But why has that become something that we can understand now? Why is speaking of gender as a fluid category, why does it sound so normal? That's because of that philosophical shift that I just mentioned earlier. Gender fluidity is the result of a worldview that sees psychology, not biology, as determinative of one's gender identity. Friends, we are living in fast-changing times. So fast that LGBTQ revolutionaries are actually outpacing each other. There has always been an unsteady alliance between the LGB and the TQ. Lesbians, gays, and bisexuals have taught that sexual orientation 
is a fixed category. That you are born attracted to one sex or to the other or to both. In other words, they focus on nature over nurture. But transgenderism and queer theory does the opposite. They focus on nurture over nature. They'd say that gender is not something that you are born with. It doesn't matter actually what you're born with. You have the freedom to change. You have the freedom to determine your own identity. In Carl Truman's book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, he gives an example of a longtime lesbian couple where one, wo one woman eventually transitioned to become a man. And that forced her partner to face an existential dilemma. Was she still a lesbian if she's now in a committed, loving relationship with a transgender man? Whose self-determined identity wins out in that particular situation? Or do they just both live their own truth and ignore the contradiction? Well, that's the most likely outcome. Because in today's world, authenticity is now the highest of virtues. The most important thing is to just be true to yourself. And that leads to our fourth statement. Fourth, the culture says that your happiness is found in becoming your true self. In becoming your true self. This fundamental assertion is what some have labeled expressive individualism. Expressive individualism. It's a way of thinking that's so commonplace nowadays that we hear it all the time without thinking twice about it. Tim Keller points out how the uber-popular Disney song, Let It Go, is a perfect encapsulation of expressive individualism. Princess Elsa's heroic choice is presented as a courageous rejection of the norms and expectations of her parents and of her community, of the, the citizens of Arendelle. And her willingness to express her true self is viewed as heroic. She's going to express herself no matter the consequences. It's time to see what I can do to test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. I don't need to actually sing it. I think you know the melody. Listen to how Keller analyzes these lyrics. He says that within the framework of, of expressive individualism, identity, quote, identity is not realized, as in traditional societies, by sublimating or re redirecting our individual desires for the good of our family and people. Instead, we become ourselves only by asserting our individual desires against society, by expressing our feelings and fulfilling our dreams, regardless of what anyone says. That's expressive individualism. Now, look, before I move on, let me just be clear. I, I'm not anti-Disney, okay? I, I will let my daughters uh, watch Frozen. I just make sure to watch Frozen with them, no matter how many times we're watching it. Because I want to help them to detect and to discern the cultural messaging that's found in there and how it stands up against the truth of Scripture. So, let me just explain, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm using that as an example, but I'm not against that movie. Now, Scripture, of course, is where I want to turn. We considered four statements from the culture, so let's consider how Scripture would now respond to those four statements. Here are four things 
that Scripture has to say about gender. First, Scripture says that your body is you, but not the totality of you. It is you, but not the totality of you. The biblical doctrine of creation teaches that you don't just have a body. You are a body. We just finished a series through Genesis 1 through 11, and we, ext- we spent extended time in chapters 1 and 2. So most of you are very familiar with the creation of Adam. So recall how God didn't create a human soul first and then go looking around for an appropriate vessel to put it in. And quite the opposite. God started with matter, and he formed it and shaped it into a human body, and then he breathed life into that body. So what does that mean? That means we as humans are embodied creatures. God purposely made us with bodies, and he said it is very good. So good that the Son of God took on a body for himself. And even after his body was beaten, bruised, and buried, he was eager to take it back up again in the resurrection. And so if the real Jesus, if the real Jesus was just merely his soul or merely his mind, then there was no need for him to have a resurrected body. But we know that Jesus' body is part of Jesus' identity. His body is vital is vital for who he is. We know him as the incarnate, risen Christ. He would not be who he is without a body. And the same would be true of us. Our bodies are a vital part of who we are. Now, having said that, it is important to acknowledge that while your body is you, it is not the totality of you That means you can make a proper distinction between your body and your soul. And the Bible does that in many places. So Jesus taught, for example, in Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, to not, quote, to not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So there you see a difference made between the two. We know that when we die, our souls will be separated from our bodies. And that doesn't mean that we suddenly cease to exist. But that separation of body and soul just makes us groan all the more inwardly. And and we eagerly await the redemption of our bodies, according to Romans 8. For that great day when we will receive, once again, these bodies back, now resurrected and glorified, We wait the day for that last trumpet to sound where the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall all be changed. That's our hope. So here's the second thing. The culture says your gender is determined psychologically. Second, scripture says your gender is recognized biologically. Now, I I thought it was fascinating that when the senator asked Judge uh, Ketanji Brown-Jackson if she could answer what a woman is, she said she couldn't because she's not a biologist. She didn't say she couldn't answer because she's not a psychologist. She said biologist. Now, granted, she probably didn't mean to affirm a view of gender as biologically recognized, but maybe that's what slipped out Because that's what we all instinctively know to be true. 
That's certainly what Scripture teaches in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. Listen to it again. Genesis 1, 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now notice with me how maleness and femaleness are grounded biologically, not psychologically. When it says God created us male and female, he did so by creating male and female bodies. And in the very next verse, he commands male and female to enter into a conjugal union and to procreate, to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. My friends, God is talking biology here, not psychology. Now, granted, being male and female is about more than biology, but not less. That means there is so much more about what it means to be a man or what it means to be a woman than just what your anatomy says about you, but not less. There is so much more about you that I can't deduce just by looking at you, but at least according to God's design, your gender is recognizable. Now, I know what some of you are probably thinking. You're probably thinking that's not always true because I know some of you are doctors some of you are nurses and you work in delivery rooms and you are aware of the rare but real case of being born intersex. That refers to persons who are born with ambiguous reproductive anatomy, which makes recognizing their gender at birth very difficult. Now, of course, there are DNA tests that you can do to look for chromosomal evidence to determine if the baby is biologically male or female. But we just have to understand that for families with intersex children, They need our love. They need our compassion as they face the pain of living life in a fallen world and as they deal with a unique set of questions and decisions that they have to make. Now, they might turn to medical intervention to help their intersex child to live out the gender that the child was born with, but which has been physically unrecognizable in one way or another. But that decision should not be confused with the contemporary controversy over medical intervention for children identifying as transgender. Children who are dealing with gender dysphoria are not in the same category as children born intersex. Those who identify as transgender are not facing ambiguity over their biological sex. And their turn to medical intervention is not trying to clarify an ambiguous biological sex. Rather, it's trying to obscure an obvious one. So these are different categories here. Now, families, though, with children dealing with gender dysphoria, likewise, as those with intersex children, they likewise need our love and our compassion because they are dealing with pain and confusion and grief that most of us cannot fathom. So we must not despise them. We must not abandon them. We must support them in ways that are consistent with biblical character and biblical conviction. That means we care for them with gentleness and humility. That means we are quick to listen. We are slow to speak. But that also means that when we do speak, we speak truth in love We tell them that God created us in his own image. In the image of God, he created us, male and female, 
He created us, and he said that it was good. Every child conceived is an act of divine creation. And no matter the effects of a fallen world on that baby in development, every newborn bears the image of God and is born with a body divinely designed to accord with the gender assigned by God. And that leads to the third thing the scripture has to say. Your gender identity is a given. The culture says gender is fluid. It says it can change. But the Bible says it's a given. Now, of course, we know that now with medical technology, it does grant us the power to reshape our bodies to match one's declared gender. That, that is possible now. So, you know, it, it might be considered antiquated to speak of gender being a given because we have all this technological ability to change what we used to understand as a given. But things are different now. We live in a new age with new technology. But let's just think about that more carefully. Granted, through medical intervention, we can delay puberty for adolescents or we can suppress hormones for adults. But the fact that you have to actively and daily work against your body's natural functions, where it's constantly pushing against you in the opposite direction, that's your body trying to tell you something. That's what theologians call general revelation. It's what the Apostle Paul speaks about in Romans 1. It is God communicating to us in the things that have been made, which would include, of course, our bodies. So the point here is that your gender, your maleness or your femaleness is not something that you determine for yourself because you are not the master artist working with a blank canvas. No, God is that master artist and he gave you a gender from the start. Now, maybe, maybe that gender is disordered Perhaps maybe it doesn't look right or feel right, but that is where you are now called to do the hard work of a restorationist, to restore the maleness or the femaleness that you were given when God was knitting you together in your mother's womb. Now, friends, here, here's where we need to be careful. Because when we speak of restoring maleness or restoring femaleness, let's be careful not to uncritically accept all of the typical gender stereotypes out there. We should be quick to affirm not only the differences between men and women, but also that there are differences between men and men and women and women. Not all men like sports and not all women like shopping. So perhaps some of the gender confusion that people deal with could be helped by distinguishing gender stereotypes from gender identity. Now, hear me, I, in no way am I suggesting that all cases of gender dysphoria can just be resolved simply like that, but I still think it's a valid point to make. So your little boy likes to play with his sister's dolls, or your little girl loves watching football or playing it with her older brothers, don't, don't jump to any conclusions there. 
My point is that you don't have to embrace traditional gender stereotypes as you hold firmly to biblical gender binary. And here's the fourth thing that Scripture has to say. Remember how your culture says that your happiness is found in becoming your true self? Scripture says your happiness is found in becoming a new creation. The most that the world can offer you is affirmation. The world can affirm whatever identity you choose for yourself. But friends, the Christian gospel offers you so much more. It offers you power. The power to transform you into a new creation in Christ where the old has gone and the new has come. There's another Disney movie with a character whose story arc communicates a message very different than Elsa's. It's the exact opposite of expressive individualism. His name is Forky, and he's from Toy Story 4. He's a spork decorated with googly eyes and red pipe cleaner for arms. And he was made by a preschooler named Bonnie. Now, when Forky meets the other toys for the first time, he's very confused because he thinks he's trash. Because honestly, that's what he's made of. So because Forky feels like trash, he keeps trying to throw himself into the trash bin, which leaves the rest of Bonnie's toys with the difficult task of convincing Forky that he's not trash. He's a toy. He's Bonnie's toy. Yes, she made him out of trash, but she made him to be her toy. And that truth, that good news had the power to transform Forky, to radically change his identity and how he saw himself. He finally saw himself through the eyes of his maker. Friends, the point is, is that Forky didn't find happiness by searching his own heart. His heart was just telling him he's trash. He found happiness by listening to his friends and by believing what they told him about the one who made him and what he was made to be. And friends, I believe that you can experience a similar kind of transformation. Not by looking within, not by searching your heart, but by listening to your friends. Your friends who are telling you and reminding you about the good news of the gospel, telling you about the one who made you and what you were made to be. Scripture says that we're made of dirt, that we come from the dust of the ground, but we are not just dirt. Sure, God made us out of dirt, but he made us to be his children. And he loves us like a father with such great love that he sent his one and only true son to live a life that we should have lived, to die a death that we should have died so that we might be adopted as sons and daughters into the family of God if we put our trust in that one true son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, your true identity and your true happiness comes from finally seeing yourself through the eyes of your maker and redeemer, 
and friend. You are his loved child. That's who you are. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the word of God as it speaks to all the issues that we deal with in our lives and in our day. And we just pray, Lord, that you would confirm your truth in our hearts and that we would remember that you made us, you made us very good. And though there is sin in this world and sin has affected us, we thank you for Jesus and the work of redemption that he accomplished so that we are now by your spirit empowered to do the work of restoration. Oh Lord, may you come quickly so that we can be fully restored, fully repaired in the image of God. In Jesus' name, amen.